Please pray with me. Oh, Lord our God, we, we thank you for the massive privilege it is to be your children, to be, to be saved, to be rescued, to be washed clean by your blood. And we thank you for the privilege of your spirit that dwells within us. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together as brothers and sisters. We thank you for the privilege of your word uh, that you speak to us through. And we pray this morning that you would... Um, Open the eyes of our heart to the truth of your word, Lord, that it would impact us, that it would uh, transform us, that it would clean us and wash us and, um, oh, Lord, renew our, our passion to live for you, Lord Jesus. So um, help us to understand what these verses meant to the original hearers and help us to understand what it means for us today, how it applies to us today. So we, we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Alrighty, so we're in the book of uh, Zechariah. Um, what I want to do is just uh, give you a brief little intro until we, we move into those verses. We're going to be looking at verses 7, 8 and 9. Now, Zechariah is, a, an, is apocalyptic literature. Uh, so the, the, the style of it is uh, very symbolic. He uses visionary sort of language. So it's a, it's a lot like the book of Daniel and the, the book of Revelation. And to give you the context, uh, the... The Israelites have come from Babylon where they were exiled for 70 years. They've returned to Jerusalem. So they've just been exiles. They've returned and they were to rebuild the temple and start living for God again. But the building of the temple had got bogged down and that's where the prophet Haggai had come and spoke to them to encourage them to continue with the building. Um, and so the temple was central for the Jewish people. And... We've got to ask the, ask the question, why was the temple central? What, what did the temple symbolise? What was the temple a medium of? Why was the, the temple so important to the Jewish people? It was because it was God's presence dwelt there. It's how God chose to presence himself. One of the, one of the ways that God chose to presence himself amongst his people. So the temple wasn't being rebuilt as it should be. But the problem was, even if it was rebuilt, the, the people weren't really ready to worship God for who he was because their hearts had already started wandering. So even though they'd come as exiles from Babylon as slaves and been returned by God's grace to their land, really they uh, were still not totally restored. So they were living uh, in a partial restoration. Even though they were in the land, their hearts were still, for majority of them, their hearts were still far from God. And it's like that for us today in that we live in a partial restoration. You know, our hearts yearn for the new paradise, for the, for the new world, for the kingdom that, that, that's, that will be ushered in. That's what our hearts yearn for. What we've lost in the original paradise, our, our hearts yearn for that. And so Jesus, through his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, he has inaugurated his kingdom rule, but it's not yet consummated. We, we're waiting for that. We're waiting for his return. So we live in a now, but not yet kingdom reign. Okay, so God, at this time when Zechariah was written, was in the business of transforming the hearts of the returned exiles that had returned to Israel and to Jerusalem. He was in the business of transforming their hearts. Um, 
as he is today. He's in the process of transforming our hearts. So we have the promises of God in the new covenant. We have the promises of God. But because of our sinfulness and the, the fallen world we live in, it, it's difficult to live in these promises. Okay, So Zechariah is a book that spoke powerfully to these people back then and it speaks powerfully to us today. So Zechariah, he has these visions and these oracles that are recorded and they're firstly to this Jewish population but they still speak powerfully to us today. So we as New Covenant, New Testament believers, we live with his promises but we live in the realities of, of a fallen, broken world. And, you know, we, we wrestle with so much stuff that's going on in our own lives. Okay, the book of Zechariah has a number of themes running through it. One, as I've mentioned, is, is God's presence among his people. Another one is a cleansing of the priesthood. And we today, the, you know, the reformation that took place with Calvin and Luther uh, was that there's a priesthood of all believers, that the priests weren't just these special people that, you know, ministered in the church. We are all priests, okay, the priesthood of all believers. And Zechariah speaks to a, a cleansing of this priesthood as he is cleansing us today. It's um, all about the Messiah, this book of uh, Zechariah. So it's the most messianic book of the whole New Testament, Zechariah. And another theme that run through, runs through the book of Zechariah is final victory. In God, there will be victory. So victory is certain, even though we live in a very uncertain world. So if you look back on history, um, you know, you see all these empires, these kingdoms, you know, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Persian Empire and the, the Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire and then, you know, the, more recently the British Empire and uh, today, you know, USA is the, the superpower of the world. But we see, you know, the pillars underpinning the US are crumbling um, and who knows how much longer before the US disappears off the map as a superpower, just like all these other superpowers have. So kingdoms are raised up, kingdoms come down. So what will be the next superpower? We don't know. It could be China. could be some sort of Islamic state. But we know that biblically, really there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Satan. And, and Augustine... Um, you know, back in the 400s, he, he wrote this book called A Tale of Two Cities. And it's about two cities, the, the city of God, which is Jerusalem, and Babylon, okay, the, the earthly fallen city. And we live in a world that will, all of us will choose one of those two cities to live in. So in the light of this, Zechariah has a lot to say about God being a warrior. There's this language that, that permeates through Zechariah as God being a warrior and therefore his people, that's us, are to live in a, a radical wartime mindset as God as our warrior king and we as his people following in his train. And why are we a people to live with a radical war mind, a wartime sort of mindset? It's because we have a sinful nature that wrestles against us. We have Satan, an enemy that wants to destroy us, wants to kill us. And there's the lusts of the world which are at war with us. So the New Testament writers uh, draw a lot from the book of Zechariah. 
And the New Testament writers were convinced that when Christ came, he ushered in the last days. Okay, so Christ now is in the, uh, in the process of preparing his bride for his glory. Okay, and one of the ways he does that is through refining us and transforming us. And so that's what the verses are that we're going to look at today, why God transforms, why he refines his people. So we're in um, Zechariah chapter 13. We'll, we'll start at verse 7, uh, verse 13, and it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands against, sorry, stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd... And the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, and to test them as gold is tested. They, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Okay, so verse 7 there, you've got God striking the shepherd, which we understand to be Jesus, and that the, the disciples are scattered, the sheep are scattered. And Jesus actually quoted from this verse at the Last Supper. So when he had all the disciples together at the Last Supper, he quoted this from Zechariah, um, saying that he was the shepherd that was going to be struck, and the sheep would be scattered, the disciples would be scattered, and that's exactly what happened. Now, in verse 8, it talks about this two-thirds and this one-third. And historically, this verse was fulfilled in the mid-60s, mid-70s. That's not 1960s or 1970s. That's back uh, in the early 60s and 70s under the Roman emperor um, Vespasian and also his son Titus. What happened was that the first Jewish-Roman war took place and basically Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And so that was fulfilled, those two-thirds perishing, being put to the sword, killing. And then you had this one-third left that were suffered uh, persecution. This, these verses could also have a, a future fulfilment, so it's not limited only to what happened back in the, the 60s, mid-60s, mid-70s. Uh, it can also have a, a, um, a future fulfilment. However, we're looking at, well, what does this mean for us today in 2018, what does this mean? Who were this one-third? Well, they were a remnant. They were the ones that were left behind. They were left alive. God spared them, all right? But they were destined for affliction. They were destined for suffering. They were destined for trial. So when you read through Scripture, God always has his remnant, his genuine people, his uh, those that are uh, the minority and their hearts are sold out for God and they look very different to the majority who profess you know, God to be their king but in fact are, are actually far from him. So we, we need to ask the question, you know, what is God's motivation for refining this remnant, this minority of people? The th first thing we need to do in, in answering this question is note that God loves them and because he loves them, he is refining them. And that's one of the things we need to cling hold of, is when God is refining us, we can question, 
why am I going through this? Why is God allowing me to go through this difficult time? And we can question, does God really love me? And this verse, particularly verse 9, is here so that we cling to a God that loves us, knowing that he is refining us for good reason. So why does he refine his people? So that they will be purified, so that the dross in their hearts, you know, that, that metal, uh, metallurgy term of removing the impurities from the metal so that it will be pure. He refines us for that reason. He refines them then and, and us now so that we'll become more like God, so that in, you know, uh, inside us we'll have a, his beauty and inner beauty and inner holiness. He refines his people so that they'll be more useful to him as his instruments. And also he refines his people so that God would be glorified in them and that we will participate in his glory um, through that process. Okay, so the fact that God refines his people through affliction uh, is a theme that runs right through the Bible. This is not just in Zechariah. This is right through Scripture. I'll read some verses just to give you a bit of a flavour to show you that this is, this is what God, this is his way of operating with his people. Deuteronomy 4.20, it says, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. Isaiah 48.10 says, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Jeremiah 9.7 says, Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, See, I will refine and test them, for what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Malachi 3.3 says, He will sit as a refiner, as a purifier of silver. Uh, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And in Psalm 66.10 it says, For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. So there's some Old Testament verses, but what about the New Testament? Well, James 1 verses 2 to 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And probably the best of all, 1 Peter 4 verses 12 to 13 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Okay, so particularly in that verse there, 1 Peter 4, shows us that this is... Not strange for his people to be refined and to go through testings and trials and suffering and persecution is not strange. In fact, it is normal Christianity. And in fact, the Western world that we live in really for the last three, four hundred years <clears throat> from a church history perspective is actually very strange that we have had so much freedom for so long. As, as, as Steve prayed, you know, it's, it's wonderful to worship in a free country where we can get together and worship and study God, God's word in freedom. But for a lot of the world today and for most of church history in lots of parts of the world, that hasn't been the case. And so who knows for how much longer we as Western Christians will have this privilege of persecution 
being per free of material, physical persecution. Now, I want to stop here and just throw in a little curveball to you. A question. What is the most dangerous place to live as a Christian here on this planet? What's the, what's the most dangerous place in the plan on the planet? You know, we might say Syria or Afghanistan or North Korea or Libya, one of those sorts of places where, where Christians are persecuted heavily. So another question for you, what if you were to pack up your family and head off to somewhere like Iraq or Iran as missionaries? You decide, all right, God has called me to go to this place with my family, my little kids, okay? What would be some of the responses of people around you that were, if you were heading off to a place like Iraq or Iran as missionaries? Surely people would say, uh, no, <laughs> are you crazy? Um, what about the safety of your family? Um, there would be that question, you are taking your family to a dangerous place. Materially dangerous, but is it spiritually dangerous is the question okay here in australia when we're number two or three on the hdi the h the human development index so as far as material prosperity goes it doesn't get a whole lot better than here in australia but i would argue that australia is probably one of the most dangerous places to live as a christian spiritually okay um, you know many professing Christians today in our country are being strangled to death by lots of stuff, you know, shopping malls, internet porn, Boxing Day sales, Netflix, Facebook trolling, computer gaming, junk mail sales catalogues, you know, the list goes on, is slowly strangling so many Christians and we don't see Australia as a dangerous place for our families. We think it's safe. But spiritually, it's probably one of the most dangerous places on the planet. More dangerous from an eternal perspective than shipping your family off to Iraq or Syria. Okay? It's really, from an eternal perspective, that serious. We live in a very dangerous country. Wonderful country materially, Health Development Index number two or three, beautiful place to live. But spiritually, it's a dangerous place to live. So, another question for you, maybe one of the best things that could happen to Australia from a spiritual point of view is to be invaded by Islam and for our churches to be shut down and for the church to go underground. What do you think would happen to your prayer life and the prayer life of your church if that happened, your prayer life would go through the roof. Your prayer life would be on fire. Okay? The, the prayer meetings would be prayer meetings you've never seen before, you've never experienced before. So maybe, just maybe, that would be the best thing God could do for Australia. Okay. So God rescues uh, his genuine church, his genuine people from the flames of hell and he puts them into refining flames as we see here verses 8 and verses 9 of Zechariah. So we know that God loves his people so why does he put them through these flames 
of affliction? Well, verse 9 answers that question. I mean, the Bible, the whole Bible answers that question, why does God put his people through suffering and affliction and trials? But let's just focus on what verse 9 tells us. Let's read it. Okay, this, he's talking about the one-third that he will put into the fire. I will put this one-third, this is the remnant that's left over. I will put this third into the fire. I will, God does. Put them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as God gold is tested. And what's the result? Here is the answer. They will call upon my name. What's that? It's prayer. Their prayer lives will be inflamed. Okay? And I will answer them. What's that? They will understand God. They will know God. They will experience God through him in their, in their prayer lives. Okay? And what, is, what does he say? He says, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So their relationship with God is deepened and strengthened like nothing else. So suffering, trials, afflictions, and I would even add to that list temptations is God's tool, his instrument, his method, his process, his school, his medium and his technique to awaken and develop our prayer life with him. Now, I added temptation to sufferings and afflictions. We know that God tempts no one. God does not tempt his people. He uses Satan as his lackey to test us. But we know that we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. So this verse, verse 9, okay, is in your Bible, is in our Bible, so that we won't turn and leave God when the flames are turned up on us. So when we go through trials, when we go through afflictions, when it's tough and it's hard, and we feel like, God, what on earth are you doing in my life? You know, things, my life's falling apart, and my, or my marriage is falling apart, my, my job situation, you know, my health, whatever it is that seems to be just going pear-shaped, and we're asking God, why are you, where are you? Why are you letting me go through this? One of the answers is that he is in the process of refining us and... Um, developing our prayer life, that we would seek him and know him like never before. This verse is also in the Bible so that you won't become a prosperity gospel Christian. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to mention names because I'll probably tread on a few toes somewhere along the line, but there's lots of prosperity gospel preachers out there you know telling you that god wants you to be wealthy and he wants you to be this and, and that and and yes god wants to bless his people and god does bless his people but when you say that god will not refine his people through suffering and affliction and persecution then you stray from the biblical understanding of what god is about so god is the consummate teacher if we look at joseph's life sold into slavery, put into prison, okay? We look at the prophets' lives. You read through the history of the prophets, the major and minor prophets. Look what they went through. 
Um, look at the 12 disciples. Look at Job. Okay? And you will see that God, when he wants to transform a life, he puts us through persecution. He puts us through suffering and trial. I'd like uh, to turn, if you want to turn to Job, the end of Job, uh, chapter 42. It's probably one of the most unread books in the Bible, especially by the prosperity preachers. Okay, and you come to this amazing verse. You, 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 you read, it's a long book, but you read what Job goes through and, you know, your heart just is torn out for the guy. But God, you know, you, you, the, the first chapter it explains, you know, Satan goes to, goes to God and says, I, I want to get this guy and God allows him. It's like God has Satan on a leash and only allows him to go so far. And then at the end of it all, when it's all done dusted, in verse, uh, chapter 42, this is what Job says in verse 5. He says, I had heard of you, God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So Job knew who God was, but he hadn't personally experienced him like face to face. And at the end of this, Job knew God, knew him like he never knew before. And this is the thing we have to cling to when God is putting us in the refining fire and we're in the furnace, we have to cling to this, that through it God will reveal himself to me in a way when we get on our knees and we cry out to him like we've never cried before and we meet with him and, and we know that the, the presence of his spirit, he reveals himself. And I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know the times when I've felt God, I mean, it's beautiful worshipping in congregation and you feel God's presence. But to me, when you are crying out to God and you are, you've got nothing else and you're crying out to God and you know, you're, you're weeping over your sin or you're weeping over something, you're, you're interceding for someone, you're, you're interceding for something and you're weeping for God, you meet with God like you, you, you never meet him in any other way. Steve Hunter gave me these um, two uh, little seedlings a while back. They're called white sapotes. I don't know whether you're familiar with white sapotes. They're beautiful little sort of semi-tropical plants, beautiful fruit. Anyway, he gave me these seedlings and we put them in our back veranda and um, sort of faces north and we've got this plastic awning that we pull down, you know, to stop the wind blowing around. Anyway, I've got these two growing. One of them sort of is about that high now. And one of them is taller than me. It's just gone ballistic. I don't know why it did that because I used exactly the same pots and soil and everything. But it grew so big, but it was inside a, the area. There's no wind, no wind whatsoever. So beautiful environment. The sun's coming in. It's warm. And you think, perfect environment for a plant to grow. And it's going, getting bigger and bigger. And then it came out one day, and it's like it's bent over. It's got so tall. It's the, the stem is so weak because... It had no wind. If I'd had that awning up and let them get blown around a bit, smacked around the chops a bit, that plant would have a strong stem, a trunk, and I wouldn't have had to put those three big stakes in to, to hold it up because it's too weak to hold itself up. Okay? That is a picture of what God does in us when he puts us through the mill, when he puts us in the furnace, when we're going through stuff that we'd rather not go through, we'd rather be somewhere else. God, get me out of here. 
I want out of this situation. Rescue me. And we're crying out for God to rescue us. And often he does. But he puts us through the ringer. He puts us into the furnace because he wants to build into us a trunk that is strong and can withstand the storms. I actually did a bit of research. I looked up the science of it. And sure enough, they've done all these experiments where they put plants in the wind the root system grows deep and strong. The stems grow thicker than the plants that have no wind. And that's what happens. When the plants are blown around by the wind, the, the trunk grows strong. So why does God put his people through the refining fire? Because he, he wants to build into us a godly, holy character. And more than that, he wants us to know him in a way that we've never known him before. And what is that? That's prayer so you know if, if your prayer life's in the toilet if it's lukewarm if it's in the freezer i don't know where it is wherever your prayer life is you know get serious with god and cry out to him okay otherwise he will have to use the refining furnace for us you know there's a verse somewhere i think it's in proverbs where it says you know do not be like the donkey that just wanders around without the the bitten bridle you know we need to discipline ourselves to be people of prayer. You know, if, if we're not people of prayer, you know, we've got to really question where is our, our spiritual life, you know? And that's not just personally in our own quiet times, you know, we start the day with and walk out our day. It, it's corporately as well, you know? The, the, the prayer meeting we have here on Sunday night is, is the engine room of this church, okay? I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you, but I'm just saying, if you, if you don't attend Sunday night prayer meeting or any prayer meeting, we've got lots of them during the week, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why aren't you praying with your brothers and sisters? You know, do you have to wait till the Muslims come and burn our church down and we go underground to get serious about prayer? Okay? Personal prayer and also corporate prayer. I'd just like to finish... Uh, so those doing the communion, if you'd like to start giving that stuff out. I'd like to read a few quotes from some saints, some present-day saints and some older saints who have experienced this. Okay, um, Spurgeon, he says that those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Now, Spurgeon... You might know he's, he's been called the Prince of Preachers, you know, one of the best preachers that ever lived. But he also suffered from depression all his life. He struggled deeply with depression. You know, he, he wrestled in his prayer life. Um, this one's from um, John Piper. It says, The suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith and governed by God for the purifying of our faith. So Satan wants to destroy us through persecution and suffering, but God ordains it that he would actually purify our faith as you purify a metal. This one's by a lady called Nancy uh, Lay DeMoss. She says, Though my natural instinct is to wish for a, tree of, uh, sorry, a life free of pain, trouble and adversity, I am learning to welcome anything that makes me conscious of my need for him. If, my, if prayer is birthed out of desperation, then anything that makes me desperate for God is a blessing. So she's come to a point in her life, she's saying, when I, when, whatever comes into my life that makes me desperate, that's actually a blessing because it's going to drive me to my knees in prayer. This one's by a guy called Peter Marshall. He says, 
It is, in fact, it is a fact of Christian experience that life is a series of troughs and peaks. In his efforts to get the permanent possession of the soul, God relies on the troughs more than the peaks. And some of his special favourites have gone through deeper and longer troughs than anyone else. Read through the Bible. Look at the, the guys and the ladies who had the deepest and strongest faith and you'll see what God put them through to develop that faith. Um, this is one by Samuel Rutherford. He says, when I am in the cellar of affliction, you know, imagine a cellar, it's dark, you know, you're under a house in a cellar. When I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. So he's saying, you know, when I'm in that dark place, I know that God has his wine there for me that will sustain me. And uh, one more, ver uh, one more uh, quote, I'm not sure who said this. It says, tears are the lenses through which we see God most clearly. And I, I can testify for that, you know, at times where I've just been praying and weeping over my sin or, or whatever the situation is, it's, it's then that I see him most clearly. So um, these verses back in Zechariah, just in finishing up, these verses, um, verse 9, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say... They are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Okay, so God will put us through the fire so that our hearts would burn for him, so that our prayer lives would be where they should be. I'll just let Jim and Julie finish off. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll lead into, um, into communion. Just maybe take this time just to um, be still before God and um, come before him um, before we, we take the, the bread and the wine. Please uh, pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, when we, we read these verses, um, we know that it is in fact you that um, we're afflicted in ways we can never understand. Um, before the cross, on the cross, uh, through bearing our sin and uh, bearing the righteous uh, wrath of God for our sin, we know that without you we are, we are blind, we are naked, we are uh, pitiful and poor. We have nothing without you, Lord Jesus. And as we come before the communion table, we, we thank you that you, you know what it is to be afflicted. You know what it is to weep. You know what it is to suffer great pain, um, emotional pain and, and physical pain and spiritual pain. Lord, you, you suffered in ways we will never suffer, Lord, and, and you... You were our forerunner, as, as we've read through Zechariah. You, you put your people through flames of furnace, but you have done that in 
in a way that's way beyond what we'll ever experience. And we do thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, because you are our saviour. You, you are our king. You bled and died for us that we would be washed clean by your blood. And Lord, we do thank you that, oh, Lord Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are our food. So as we, as we come to eating the bread and, and, and drinking the wine, which symbolises your, your broken body and, and your blood, poured out for us lord help us lord we so many of us in this room we suffer with so many things lord so many sins so many addictions um, family strife marriage problems lord ill health um, emotional wranglings and um, oh, financial problems lord all manner of problems we, we pray lord in, in the midst of these times please help us to cling and to cleave to you and Lord, grow us as a people of prayer that we would cry out to you and know you as our, as our king, as our, and present within us, present within us by your spirit. So Lord, we, we thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood poured out. Help us to not only remember you now, but um, as we walk out this day and walk out the coming weeks, Lord, may we cling to you and look to you uh, in all things, especially when you take us through those places of, uh, of hardship. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Please uh, eat and drink.